the Chinese Communist Party is aiming to become the world's leading AI superpower by 2030. What are the resulting geopolitical risks and implications of China's growing influence in this realm? The Economist's senior Asia correspondent, Dominic Zeigler, Human Rights Watch's China senior researcher, Maya Wang, senior fellow of Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, Stephen Feldstein, and Lindsay Gorman of the German Marshall Fund's Alliance for Securing Democracy discussed China's status as an emerging global AI superpower. Welcome to Dissidents and Dictators, a series of conversations by the Human Rights Foundation dedicated to exposing and challenging authoritarianism around the world. This conversation was part of a four-part series presented in partnership with the Human Rights Foundation, Stanford University's Global Digital Policy Incubator, the Hoover Institution, and the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. Uh, Larry, at the outset of this, uh, this terrific rolling conference, uh, you asked the question, what happens when the world's most powerful authoritarian regime bids to become the dominant AI superpower. And that's really what this session, China as an emerging AI global superpower, is going to grapple with. Um, it's fantastic that uh, Mike laid out some of the military dimension, uh, the, the context of great power competition, uh, what it means for those thinking about economic systems uh, and, and government power and projection. Hold all that in your minds, but because of constraints of time, we're going to look in terms of China as an emerging AI superpower at what and how AI is applied, what it looks like at home, and then to ask, you know, to what extent can it be exported around the world? What is China's aim? Now, I think we should focus uh, on what it looks like at home, even though previous sessions have done too, simply because of the sheer scale in which state surveillance um, has has meant a kind of scope and intrusiveness that really is unprecedented. And it's also unprecedented that it's tied to a, a program of forced assimilation in Xinjiang where previous habits of religion and cultural and family identity are meant to be replaced by loyalty to the Communist Party itself. Um, you know, one of the questions then that we're going to grapple with in this session is to say, well, you know, if this is the dystopia at home, and it also extends to other parts of China, of course, through the social credit system, can other governments emulate it? You know, is this model exportable? Does it make money for China? Related to that is another key question. Uh, does China have a grand strategy? The Cornell scholar, Jessica Weiss, pointed out that the, the diffusion of digital authoritarianism isn't the same thing as an intentional effort to remake other governments in China's image. And one of our panelists, whom I'm about to introduce in a minute, has uh, suggested that perhaps China's approaches may be less systematic and more opportunistic than we think. But either way, intent matters. And um, it matters in part because uh, that that should dictate how democracies should respond. And there's another key area. You know, if the US and its friends could consider themselves to be 
engaged in a struggle for the soul of the future of the internet and of technology much more broadly, well then, what should its tools be? And indeed, should it look at, you know, should Western democracies, liberal democracies look into their own souls when it comes to the use of, uh, of technology that uh, can be abused as much as put to good use? Now, I will now, if I may, just introduce a brilliant panel um, that is joining me. Um, they're experts with experience and insights across China, across AI, governance, geopolitics. So it's a real pleasure to introduce them. First of all is Maya Wang. She's with Human Rights Watch. Uh, there she's the senior China researcher. She's joining us on audio only. Stephen Feldstein is at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he's the senior fellow in Carnegie's Democracy, Conflict and Governance program. And lastly, Lindsay Gorman. She's at the German Marshall Fund of the United States, where she's the fellow for emerging technologies at the Alliance for Security, Securing Democracy. Could we start, please, with Maya? Uh, Maya, uh, for those uh, who don't know Human Rights Watch's work in Xinjiang, has really pioneered the extent of the surveillance state there. Um, and in particular, um, they've reverse engineered the software and the app that is used by the authorities uh, to collect enormous amounts of data to control the population. Uh, Maya, over to you, please. Thank you, Dominic, and um, I'm very pleased uh, to be speaking today. Um, I would just start by, you know, sharing what we know about um, the chi China's use of mass surveillance in the country. Um, the Chinese government actually spent 20 years uh, or more to um, develop what we see today. It's only getting kind of media coverage internationally in the last few years. Um, um, and it spent those years actually doing a lot of kind of foundational building. Um, first of all, um, it uh, builds a national ID system, which it just sounds like what many countries do. Uh, but on top of that, it has collected uh, multiple types of biometrics from ordinary people. And we're not talking about people who have a criminal record, but ordinary people across the country collecting their DNA, uh, voice samples, gates, um, faces, and um, also other personal information. So some of the research we have done looking into policing um, police collection of mass uh, of data also involves, for example, the Ministry of Public Security in some some areas collecting people's supermarket membership uh, or um, requiring that uh, health data be merged to the public security systems. Uh, the Chinese police also have record of women's reproductive status, whether or not you have inserted an intrauterine device um, or that you have uh, had abortions is also in the police systems. Um, so in addition to this kind of mass collection of data, um, the Ministry of Public Security has also um, been developing big data platforms. Um, and I will get to that in a minute. And these big data platforms um, kind of try to merge many of these sources of information together to gauge, um, to, to learn about generally how individuals act and are related to across the country. Um, Human Rights Watch in the last uh, three years have been documenting uh, these systems, uh, in particularly uh, Xinjiang. And I'll try to share uh, a screen from what our research looking in reverse engineering um, 
um, the authorities big data system in Xinjiang, um, northwestern China, where, like you said, the Chinese government is implementing this fairly um, uh, unprecedented effort to assimilate and essentially engineer a group of people, ethnic minority Muslims, Turkic Muslims, who look and speak and, and, and uh, believe in Islam in a way that is very different from the Han population through a coercive system of political education camps that have no basis in Chinese law. But in addition, that whole region is being subjected to a form of very pervasive and intrusive mass surveillance system. Um, so we reversed, we obtained uh, a policing app uh, that um, is connected to what the authorities called um, the Integrated Joint Operations Platform, IJOP. Um, and the IJOP system is kind of like the mother of surveillance systems. Um, it is connected to, to various camera systems in Xinjiang. It's connected to the many checkpoints in the region. Uh, and we're talking about every 500 meters or so in a city to every access point in cities and villages where these checkpoints are. And um, these checkpoints are um, tech and enabled. Um, they're collecting people's ID number, but when, when people go through these checkpoints, they have to swipe the ID. But also when they go through the checkpoint, they have to go through facial recognition. And also unbeknown to them, um, the, uh, these checkpoints are in, uh, uh, integrated with these things called data doors, which people don't know, but when you walk through them, your phone IMEI number, the identifying number of your phone is being kind of collected uh, and, and and all of that information is being sent to the back end of IJOP to figure out whether or not you are um, you are suspicious in the authorities' eyes. And what does it mean to be suspicious um, in, in Xinjiang? And I will try to share that um, screen if I can. Uh, um, and um, this is a very long report, and I'm only sharing a snippet of um, what um, the IJOP app looks like. So the IJOP app is installed on government officials' um, phones in um, Xinjiang. And um, the government officials go around, collect information um, about the population there, and that information is sent to IJOP. And vice versa, the IJOP also sends information to the officials' phones when they notice something is irregular about some individuals in the population. And this is an example of what the IJOP system considers to be unusual. So it is about the IJOP system noticing that people are using too much, uh, an individual is using too much electricity. It sends an alert to the government official, ask, telling them, um, and I don't know if my, my connection is that good, but it's telling the official that um, Mohammed, for example, who lives in Aksu, uh, is using too much electricity on August 30th. Um, and please go and investigate this unusual use of electricity. Um, please note down um, the, uh, the, um, whether or not this person, go and investigate if this person um, has the following tools in their home. Are they using new home appliances? Um, are they engaged in um, agriculture? Uh, or appliances um, that can be used to make um, kind of like sharpening tools or or tools for weaponry or, or, or something like that? Uh, do they have any kind of an explosives in the home? And do they require further investigation? Yes or no? And send it back to the IJOP system. Um, and that's just one screenshot of how the IJOP works. Um, and 
the IGOP system um, works also by way of um, not only just monitoring people going to seek further information about suspicious individual, these suspicious individual um, upon further investigation are also actually sent to political education camps. So to cut a long story short, essentially what happened is that in Xinjiang, the authorities have blanketed the whole region with kind of sensory systems, monitoring people's movement relationships. Do they enter their homes through the front door versus the back door? Do they use too much electricity? Do they donate to mosques? Do they use WhatsApp instead of WeChat, the Chinese um, social media uh, you know, application? And these kind of suspicious behavior, such as using too much electricity, are then used to vet people and send people to political education camps because for nothing very unusual, such as using WhatsApp. Um, and um, we are seeing really essentially the first time we have in kind of, um, I guess, human history where we are seeing a big data system is sending people to um, political indoctrination indefinitely um, um, and release only because the party says they have completed their political education. Um, and no other governments have that capability of the, uh, the ability to see and sense at all times, intruding in people's homes and personal relationships, and then require them to go through thought um, changes. And not only that, the IJOP, like I said, is also connected to the region's checkpoints. And when people go through these checkpoints, it's, again, it's not just a matter of is this person who they claim to be, which is also part of the IJOP function, but the IJOP actually also stops people who are suspicious in authority's eyes. So again, people who are related to someone who has gone to Turkey, because going to Turkey is suspicious in authorities' eyes, because anyone who is based in the Middle East could be a terrorist, right? This is, this is how the Chinese government's logic goes when you have very vague definitions of terrorism and suspiciousness. So uh, let's say an aunt who is related to uh, a son who is uh, studying in Turkey would be stopped by the IJOP system at one of these checkpoints for further police investigation and can be sent to political education camps. And that also means that throughout Xinjiang, it's not just about the political education camps that are problematic and have been reported internationally. It's also a series of virtual fences that dots around the region, preventing people to venture um, let's say maybe they're only allowed to be home or they're only allowed to be in their village. They're only allowed to be in the prefecture where they're registered to leave, live. A series of segregations that are subjecting the Uyghur population and the Turkic Muslims to severe movement restrictions. The level of such restrictions is dependent on their political loyalty to the state. And so that we have never seen in human history. And that is what we have to contend with when we talk about the Chinese government, is is nothing that any other government has tried to achieve. Um, and but I would also try to demystify some of the Chinese government's efforts. I think often we think the Chinese government is kind of like all powerful and, and all seeing, which I just used as a as a description. But at the same time, if you look at how the IJOP actually functions, there are a lot of problems. First of all, it's very labor intensive. You see, sending each of these alerts to a government official to respond, you actually need a fair number of government officials working around the clock from 6 a.m. to through midnight, which is what some of the officials told us. It's, it's very, very difficult uh, in the long term. Um, there are a lot of silos between different government um, um, authorities. The Ministry of Public Security doesn't want to share information with 
um, other um, government bodies. Uh, there are different brands of surveillance companies involved, all vying for um, data and attention and money. Um, there is also the, the final question, are these analytics actually useful? You can say, well, you know, if you detain, I don't know, 10%, 15% of Xinjiang's man population, you would probably would never have any kind of what the authorities consider to be trouble, which is essentially what had happened. Do you actually need to invest that much money in a so-called AI system that is vague and not very specific for that purpose? Or is that just a way of justifying using technology that this is anything but, you know, um, collective punishment. Um, and so I would just end there and say, I think bear in mind to think that on the one hand, there's a Chinese government saying that's what they are doing and saying how innovative look, look at us. On the other hand, there's also the, the impacts of how these systems actually work. And often they don't work very well and lead to abuses and suffering on a wide scale. Thank you. Thank you very much, Maya. That was really interesting and also uh, terrifying. The the extent to which uh, mass surveillance and technology is put to what is essentially a, a, a racialist policy of subsuming all minority groups within the great Chinese empire, as it as it stood uh, with the borders of the Qing Dynasty, trying to all subsume them into the in what what the government calls the China race. And of course, where I'm sitting in Hong Kong. Um, Xinjiang doesn't seem that far that far away in terms of uh, the central government's um, approach, even if it's a very very different place economically and uh, still, uh, thank God, um, in terms of some basic freedoms. Um, I was very uh, interested by uh, your suggestion that um, the whole system may not be as efficient as um, it would uh, appear on the surface, or the government would like it to appear. Um, and that you know, if you put garbage in, in terms of um, uh, in terms of data that's um, been input wrong, um, if, if brands can't talk to each other, well, then there are problems. There's also the the cost over the past five years. Something like 300 billion U.S. dollars has been spent by the central government in in Xinjiang. So uh, there there are there are costs to it. But Steve. Um, there's a, there's a ton of, of kit that Huawei, Hikvision, ZTE would like to uh, sell to the world. Um, they are selling it to the world. Um, does it mean that China is uh, is is now fast becoming the sort of the exporting AI superpower, um, or is it merely um, you know one amongst many uh, influential players in, in in this area? Great. Thank you, um, and uh, you know, I'm happy to be here today. I really appreciate the presentation that Maya uh, gave. So much of her research has been instrumental in my own thinking in terms of developing and understanding both of terms of what is happening when it comes to digital repression issues within China, and then what does that interaction look like uh, more broadly? And I, I, I do wanna sort of uh, uh, hit upon one point that Maya mentioned at the end, which I think is really crucial. And it's this idea that on the one hand, people talk about these Orwellian systems of control that is powered by artificial intelligence and other advanced systems and how the Chinese are using these in new and innovative ways, the likes of which the world has, has never seen. And yet uh, the, the description uh, that Maya described uh, at the end where you're actually looking at a system being used in a very broad and crude manner where you're uh, locking up 10% of the population, which is not at all 
the intent of a system, uh, an AI system that actually wor is working the way it's designed, I think is a pretty, it shows you a pretty interesting discrepancy and also shows you how much political repression agendas permeate uh, no matter what kind of technology is being used. So to kind of bar off the question uh, uh, that Dominique uh, asked that I'm gonna look at, you know, um, to what extent is the behavior, is the technology that's being used uh, within China, whether it's in Xinjiang or, or uh, in the mainland, is that rec replicable in other countries? Uh, and to what extent is that uh, more or less Chinese driven uh, or is this something that uh, other countries are also have a role in uh, proliferating? Uh, so I, I've done some research in terms of looking at the general diffusion of this technology. And, you know, one thing I think that is pretty clear is that use of this technology broadly uh, when it comes to public uh, big data surveillance uh, uh, linked oftentimes to different artificial, artificial intelligence systems is increasing at a rapid pace around the world. Uh, I put together um, last year uh, an index that kind of looked globally at uh, which countries generally have taken up these capabilities. And it showed that at least 77 countries around the world um, representing close to about 44% of all countries assessed uh, employ AI-powered public surveillance for both legitimate and illegitimate purposes. And that, what we saw is that the pool of countries uh, are heterogeneous. They come from all regions and they encompass all forms of governments from liberal democracies to closed authoritarian states. Uh, I looked at sort of four sort of categories of, of, of uh, advanced surveillance. I looked at uh, countries deploying smart cities, safe cities, uh, facial recognition, smart policing, uh, and uh, social media surveillance. And, and all four of these to pretty uh, significant levels are being used across these systems. And, and you know, one of the things that I first wanted to understand even theoretically was just uh, what kind of advantages might a government obtain by using these systems? And, and really, you know, what these systems allow when properly implemented, deployed, uh, and enacted is to allow regimes to automate many tracking and monitoring functions that were formerly relegated to human operators. Now, as Maya mentioned, that doesn't mean that you take out the human component element from that, but it does allow you to sift through massive amounts of information uh, in a way that otherwise would be more or less uh, impossible. And so over time, this shift can potentially increase cost efficiencies and decrease reliances on security forces, uh, thereby bringing out more of an omnipresent surveillance capability, as well as creating a considerable chilling effect when it comes to people's perceptions that they're being watched. Now, China is certainly a major supplier of AI and big data surveillance, and you see this technology linked to a range of Chinese companies. So not just Huawei and ZTE, but also Hikvision, Dahua, SenseTime, Megvi, and a host of others, uh, and you know, uh, in, in many of the countries that I mentioned. And probably the true number of countries using this technology is even higher uh, as public documentation of some of these exports can be limited. Uh, one other interesting kind of point is that I found in at least 24 of the countries that I mentioned, Chinese firms appear to be the primary suppliers of AI and big data surveillance technology to those respective governments, which sort of then raises the question, well, do they have a monopoly, at least in a, in a smaller subset of, of countries when it comes to using this type of technology for particularly uh, repressive uh, agendas? Now, I do want to mention that the further I've gone along in this research, the more I've looked into it and looked at which types of companies, which types of technologies uh, are, have played significant roles, the more I found companies from uh, around the world based in both liberal democracies as well as authoritarian states are actively uh, providing this technology. So it's far from limited just to Chinese companies, but you have U.S. companies ranging from Palantir, Andrel, 
uh, Predpol, uh, Genentech, uh, many others, Israeli companies. Uh, you have major suppliers that are uh, headquartered in Japan, Australia, South Korea, and Western Europe, ranging from NEC uh, to Secunet, Cognitech. Russian firms can't be overlooked uh, as well. Uh, and so you really do see increasingly a crowded landscape that, uh, you know, while there may be a significant imprint and footprint from, from Chinese companies, is hardly relegated just to companies uh, originating from, uh, from China. So I, this leads to a few insights I wanna, I wanna sort of lead you to that hopefully is, is fodder for our, our discussion. So one of which is, it, and it relates to the point that uh, Dominic uh, mentioned at the beginning, China is certainly a leading player in providing AI surveillance tools, but I don't think its tech export strategy is straightforward in that I don't think it's simply propagating a digital authoritarian model as a means to export an alternative form of governance. So there's the issue of, is China following a grand strategy? You know, is it more opportunistic than systematic, which is something I've said a few, uh, written a few different times. And I really do think that it, it oftentimes is dependent on political context, uh, China's strategic bilateral objectives, uh, as well as its economic uh, interests uh, when it comes to different countries. So in, in certain regions, for example, uh, in Europe, uh, you know, where China uh, does have a presence uh, in terms of establishing safe cities and other types of technologies, China may be, play, be playing more of a longer game. So it's getting involved in markets, but it's not playing an active role in pushing uh, and linking these to a political use of its tools. In other places, China's actions may be more insidious. So countries, for example, that have few places to turn to for advanced technology because of being political pariahs, so Venezuela, Zimbabwe, uh, for example, those represent different types of categories. Countries that lack access uh, to this technology, to the resource constraints that China is otherwise willing to subsidize. So places like Uganda and Serbia, that represents another category of countries. Or countries where China is looking to facilitate closer partnerships because of strategic uh, reasons. So Zambia, Algeria, Cambodia, Argentina. These are other examples of where there are specific reasons why China may be providing these advanced tools uh, for, for its own purposes. But it is worth noting that liberal democracies are also major users of, of AI and big data surveillance. Uh, and that when I found in my data that equivalent numbers of, of uh, authoritarian states and liberal democracies have these capabilities. Now, whether they're being used in the same manner, whether they're being used for repressive uh, purposes, is, it does vary. But the fact remains that it is something that is prevalent in both types of systems. Um, and I would also mention then that, you know, I think it's important for us to think it beyond just supply side considerations when analyzing the impact of the proliferation of these tools. So we focus a lot on who is providing these tools uh, and the fact of, of whether what it means when a Chinese company provides certain types of systems and how it does so. But the other side of the coin is to what extent are governments motivated to acquire these tools? What political incentives exist for them to turn uh, to their use against dissenters? And I think for many countries, AI and mass surveillance aren't great options, even if they are enacting a repressive agenda. So if you look at countries like Thailand and Ethiopia, for a variety of reasons, whether it's due to past political practices, whether it's due to resource constraints and technological capacity, they are using digital repression tools. They're using spyware. They're using um, physical surveillance. Uh, they're using censorship filtering. But the idea of, of replicating a system like China's using in Xinjiang is actually not something that makes feasible sense, at least in the near term. I mean, you also have to ask yourself some counterfactuals when it comes to China's use of these tools in the sense that if Chinese companies didn't exist, would the country still acquire such technology if it's out there? 
You should also, you might also want to ask if China was a negligible player in the digital oppression market, would oppression still occur, repression still occur in a given country? So given those kind of dynamics, I think it's important to kind of ask ourselves, you know, more clearly, what role, what are the factors uh, that determine whether, how, and if Chinese uh, exports, particularly of this type of technology, to what extent are they driving uh, political repression uh, in given states? Uh, so why don't I stop there, uh, and I look forward to the discussion. Well, thanks very much, Steve. In in, um, in one of the fascinating papers you've you've written, um, you take the example of Saudi Arabia, where uh, U.S. companies are selling stuff. Uh, Britain's BAE is is helping with uh, surveillance equipment. So Google's in there. Um, Huawei and others are in there, and it's the classic thing that middling powers do, which is you know. They they hedge their options, uh, and and that uh, that seems to be happening uh, in in various parts of the world. Um, Lindsay, I mean that presumably has implications for how liberal societies should think about responding to China's AI push uh, overseas, and um, should liberal democracies also be thinking about getting their their own houses in order as well. Uh, foundation for having me today. Those were, I think, two fascinating presentations. And I would add that I am also very inspired by both Maya and Stephen's work on this topic. Um, for my comments today, I'd like to focus sort of on the overarching frame of the future internet, uh, which is a series of, of, of research I've, I've been conducting over the last year to sort of put these application technologies that have really disturbing consequences for openness and for democracy and for universal rights uh, in the context of China's broader strategy to shape the norms and the technology of this future internet agenda. And uh, as Dominic alluded to, what I'll conclude with sort of a, the, the broad contours of a prescription for how liberal democracies can get in this game in a way that buttresses their own values. Um, and stepping back, I think, we're, we're engaged, part of the reason why I think we're here today is that we have increasingly come to realize that this contest over technology is about more than just the technology itself. It's about this struggle between closed societies and open societies, between democracies and between authoritarianism and, and the attractiveness of those models um, and how technology is mediating this dispute and, and particularly uh, in the information arena. And you know, that when the internet was founded, it was founded sort of accidentally, um, but on these principles that more connectivity and more openness would create more discourse and more liberalization and, and perhaps even more democracy. And I think what we've seen with China's global rise, uh, which shouldn't really be a surprise given, given how the sort of the seeds of control really entered in, uh, into China with the internet, um, is that that's not necessarily the case, that having openness and connectivity and the ability to connect to to anyone, anywhere, uh, actually is, is, while at the same time in liberal democracies, is increasing discourse uh, in these digital authoritarianism contexts, uh, is fueling repression and creating new to, new tools of control. And I think there are sort of three key trends going forward that are going to inform this, this global struggle. 
that perhaps call for a reorientation of U.S. national security policy and strategy to better meet the challenge. Um, the first one of those is this increasing confluence between the economics and the national security. Um, previously, there was, a, I think, a clearer separation between economic power and military power. National security was more defined in terms of a nation's military strength. Um, and I think what we're seeing and what we're, we're having to wrestle with is this idea that technological competitiveness is becoming a critical element of national power and having these national security implications that go beyond the contours of one particular company or even one particular technology industry. And I think, you know, we see that in intellectual property theft. We see that with the recent administration's uh, trade war agenda and mixing mixing these questions about technological competitiveness. We see that with the massive state subsidies that the Chinese government um, has put into telecommunications firms like Huawei in order to achieve global competitiveness. So I think we're not really able to separate out these two dimensions in the same way that we may have once been able to. The second trend, which I think is related to the first, is that national power is, is decreasingly about military strength and increasingly about economic power, about technological competitiveness, about soft power, about governance norms and the ability to shape the international environment, and also about power in the information arena. This is sort of emerging as a domain of competition between autocracies and democracies, that these future internet technologies really is going to play, or we're going to play a front and center role in. Um, and then I think the third trend that many of, uh, much of, of Maya's work in particular really draws on is this use of data as, a, as an implement of national power and leading to this desire to control data and to amass data um, to fuel technologies of the future. Um, there are estimates that say by 2025, the data in the global data sphere will be on the order of zettabytes. Um, and I, I come from a, a quantum physics background in condensed matter physics where we have this idea of more is different. And that means that the more data you throw in there, you're not just getting the same. It's, it's not about just adding more information and, and enabling a, a linear scale of, of applications but really that once you throw so many uh, so many particles, so many bits of information, so many atoms in the mix there, the scale of the application and the scale of the phenomena that in, you know, in, a, in a physics sense that you can observe really outpaces and, and outtracks the inputs to that system. And so I think that's what we're seeing as we see some of these applications uh, be developed. And I think as, as my two colleagues pointed out, they are sort of at the initial stages of their applicability, but this is really a data-driven economy that we're entering into. And so, so, so with that context in mind, um, my work really looks at the future of the internet, which I conceive of in across three dimensions, uh, the infrastructure, the application, and the governance layers, and how China is, is striving for dominance across all these layers, um, more so not only at home, but also around the world. And so, when you talk about the infrastructure layer, where you know we've focused a lot on 5G, and I think there has been international attention on that rightly because this is really the ground layer of the the new internet, the future 
internet on which all of these applications will sit and through which all this data will be flowing. And so whoever controls the, the access points from the infrastructure layer will have massive advantages downstream as they go to build some of these applications that Maya and Steven have gotten into. And so that's why you've, we've, you've seen the United States government on an international mission to exclude the, the sort of elephant in the room of Huawei from uh, diplomatic and uh, diplomatic exchanges from allied uh, critical infrastructure networks. And for whatever reason, I think this, this started off as an initiative that pit the, the cheaper equipment um, against the United States' sort of ill-explained concerns about China's presence in global future networks. Um, but for whatever reason, over the course of, of the pandemic, we I think we've seen a shift, particularly in Europe, to a broader understanding of the threats that China may pose in the information space. And actually just, um, I think over the weekend, it was uh, Germany looks like is coming out with a law to phase out Huawei and its infrastructure, which is really a big win um, for those of us who think that uh, excluding uh, this, this high-risk infrastructure is the right move. And so we've seen some encouraging steps on that infrastructural level, um, but two points I would make about sort of the insufficiency of uh, liberal democracies' responses, even at this, this very basic level where I think the lion's share of the focus and policy um, has been placed, is one, I think, you know, as the United States kind of uh, alluding to sort of Michael Brown's comments in the beginning, as the United States sort of marvels at how we ended up on the back foot vis-a-vis uh, -vis China when it comes to 5G infrastructure, China is already actually marching ahead and developing the standards for 6G infrastructure. And they're doing that through international standards bodies. Uh, they're doing that through joint R&D centers. And the United States, I think, has not really realize that we need to be actively competing in 6G right now. Um, and the second part of that, uh, the infrastructural component that I would point to is that right now, much of this competition is playing out in the global south. And the incentives uh, and these, these mixed incentives between economics and national security that, that developed nations are struggling with have a completely different calculus when you look at places such as those that Stephen has analyzed uh, in, in the diffusion of Huawei technology. Um, moving sort of to the application layer of that, this is not just the facial recognition systems and the apps that I think Maya has so extensively and uh, illustratively detailed, but it's also things like smart city infrastructure, smart streetlights, which are increasingly having information systems built in, autonomous cars, um, there, are, there are aspirations um, within China to use AI technology at the application layer to create um, smart legal processes um, to automate away some of the, the thornier and more labor intensive aspects of how a judiciary works, um, smart courts that might eliminate at the basic level some, some court proceedings. And you can see how these, these applications can become very attractive um, especially for governments that are, are struggling to build independent judiciaries. And I think here also democracies have some potential disadvantages that we need to be mindful of countering. Um, one is that at least insofar as the government is concerned, we are not really in a position to vacuum up citizen data. Uh, authoritarians, I think like China and Russia and others who are starting to get into this game don't have that same limitation. Um, 
And the second really is about how these AI systems uh, in, in liberal democracies have been shown to indicate bias. And that's something that democracies are increasingly hamstrung by, particularly I think as we've seen in the use of facial recognition and its inability to, uh, to recognize accurately people of color and particularly women um, based on the data that gets fed into those systems. Um, I think, you know, in the case of China or other more authoritarian leaning governments, those details can be sort of ironed out as the application develops. And certainly the more data that it's collected, if the application is in use, the easier it will be to iron that out. Whereas democracies may, may face um, sort of a starting, a starting line disadvantage because we can't just implement smart courts um, without knowing for sure that they're not going to disadvantage particular segments of the population. And so I think, you know, lastly, at this application layer, we're talking heavily in the United States um, and a little bit elsewhere as well about information platforms like TikTok and WeChat. And when it comes to sort of understanding what those real threats are, it's really a matter of this massive data collection, this zettabytes of data and how those 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 data points can be used to really shape our information realities. Um, and this is where I think, you know, Russia's Russia's uh, famous or infamous interference in 2016 really comes into play because we and we know that China is already conducting disinformation operations across these application layer technologies, um, even built by U.S. companies, Twitter, Facebook, uh, YouTube are all subject to Chinese influence operations. Uh, and so the question of as China owns more and more of these platforms that even democracies use what are the threats and what are the risks to our, our collective information environment that come to play there. And then lastly, I would just allude to this governance dimension of this future internet, which is really, I think, something we haven't talked enough about um, and where uh, the US retreat from the world stage uh, is really putting democracies at a disadvantage vis-a-vis -vis these future technologies. We're talking about UN agencies, uh, the third generation partnership project as well, the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, where many of the international standards for the technologies that are going to define not just the infrastructure layer, like the 5G and the 6G systems, but also the applications that are going to sit on top of that layer are being meted out and defined. And what are the governance norms about how data is stored, how it is accessed by governments um, that are that are currently being shaped in these in these you know very very wonky, very technical, technocratic bodies. But we're seeing that they're having an influence on the governance norms, especially around data um, that are in play. And increasingly, China is using this confluence between the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals that put economic development at the center uh, of this agenda to to help foster its own technological competitiveness. And with that inherently, whether you know deliberately or not, uh, a, a vision that allows the state to collect much more information than, than democracies would like. And, and then so I just would conclude by saying quickly that I think I'm happy to go into this more into the discussion um, that for, when it comes to liberal democracies responding, we really need to do two things. One is to, to take a look in the mirror and see what elements of our own systems, private sector and otherwise, are potentially feeding repression. Uh, how can we design liberal technologies that at the same time harness artificial intelligence and big data applications? Because I do believe they are the future. But to do that 
in a way that respects our fundamental liberties and fundamental values. Um, and then secondly, really think about contesting China's push on the world stage. And that means getting together with our allies and not allowing our own technology to feed that repression and really pushing back on some of these standards that are building authoritarian control into the future internet. So I will end there and look forward to, to getting into the discussion. Lindsay, thanks so much. Uh, like Maya and Steve, you've thrown uh, out a huge amount of really interesting and important stuff. I'm aware how frighteningly fast the time is spooling forward. Uh, and I think that your mention of governance is something that I like to suggest that we spend a bit, a bit of time on. I think this really is important, governance broadly defined. Uh, I mean, you mentioned that it was the right move. It's the right move to exclude high-risk infrastructure like Huawei. I'm not American, and I'm sitting in a part of the world where a lot of countries are uneasy at uh, being forced to, to take sides uh, in this. Um, and, and it certainly strained uh, Britain's relationship with, uh, with the US, uh, and it's caused friction between the US and Germany. At the same time, we see um, President Trump's administration, um, I think, frankly, making a bit of a dog's dinner over TikTok. Um, there hasn't been a sense of, of clarity in terms of what it's out to do in terms of excluding Chinese tech. I mean, after all, ByteDance gets to keep all its fabulous algorithms and it gets a high valuation for its US business. So now, where is it appropriate uh, to push back? Where is it appropriate to be relaxed? That's one set of questions I'd love to ask all three of you. Um, and the other set is, well, you know, if we are going to try to change the global uh, rules for AI technology and the like, well, how do we do it? We're not going to get a, you know, a unanimous vote in the UN. So how do you build coalitions? How do you shape the global environment in, in ways that actually, you know, that actually does change in particular China's behavior, but not only China's? Maya, could I start with you? Sure. I mean, um, thank you so much for my co-panelist um, presentations and, and Lindsay ending with such a sweeping overview of some of the, you know, future technologies that I think if used uh, improperly, and there is a re real risk of that, uh, we're going to see a very, very terrifying future. I mean, this is just the beginning, right? Um, um, but I think, Dominic, you're also very right. I think many countries around the world, and I know this also because we often work on these other countries to to push them to to do the right things on on vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese government, and they come back and say, "Well, we don't want to take sides between U.S. China," and and suddenly you are thrown in this framework about U.S. China when you're really talking about fundamental human values, um, and um, doing the right things. Um, so I think you know I think Lindsay was getting to that point here where. Um, I think we need to look at why, so let's say American, British, or any other technologies are really, are they really that different? I mean, Stephen, you were saying that, well, everyone is trying to sell surveillance technologies to repressive governments, essentially. There are no rules to um, ban these um, technologies. There are emerging ones in the EU for some subset of these technologies. So we need to say, well, in the development of technologies, which are not agnostic, as we found out, what are the democratic alternatives? There is currently, I feel, there's no real content to, to our technologies that are, quote, democratic. 
Um, is it a kind of Dem, de, quote democratic technologies of Facebook and Google, which is actually vacuuming people's personal data and making money out of it in a form of surveillance capitalism. Are we choosing between surveillance capitalism of the West versus state-led um, surveillance of China? That's that's just no choice at all. Um, so in order to actually have a choice, it would have to be that democracies have to espouse some kind of value-driven um, a technological ecosystem that is convincing and inspiring and doesn't depend on proprietary um, technologies from companies that can then subvert the very idea of democracy. Um, so some of the interesting examples talking about smart cities and various applications of AI is, for example, Barcelona um, and Taiwan, where they are really saying, well, smart cities are smart, not because of these fancy technologies we are using to monitor citizens, but they should be smart because citizens can use them in ways that they really work for them. So, um, and, and also developing a lot of these smart technologies have nothing to do with collecting personal data. So for example, um, manhole covers that conserve um, water use or, or, or treat the environment and pollution is, is pretty non-controversial. So take those things apart, really develop them, them to solve problems of pollution. But then the other things that have to do with personal data, make them transparent, use open source technology, and, and encourage um, the population um, to engage in decision-making in a transparent and open manner, such that people trust governments in developing this system. So I think I, I'm not sure that necessarily answers the whole host of challenges that we just laid out. But I think that going back to these values help us in understanding that, well, maybe we're not going to be able to compete to the bottom, which is not what we're trying to do, but we can compete to the top for offering a better alternative to how technologies should be used to serve and advance human dignity. Thanks very much, Maya. Great. Steve, do you want to jump in there? Sure. No, I, I think, first of all, I think Maya really lays out uh, the kind of issues well. And I really want to expand upon two points uh, that that kind of came to me as, as she was speaking. So one of which is that I do think we have an issue where we're conflating to some degree the geopolitical uh, and the notion of advancing universal freedoms uh, and human rights, the sort of digital rights uh, issue. And so even if you kind of go back to today's broader session, uh, starting with Mike Brown's presentation and then leading into our panel, uh, you know, a good portion of what Mike was talking about uh, is, is the notion of geopolitical competition with the implicit message being that the United States represents uh, a liberal democratic perspective uh, and value set uh, with China representing another one. But oftentimes when this discussion is framed to countries, uh, you know, let's say in the global South, uh, it doesn't look like there is a choice between uh, digital rights, liberal democratic uh, orientation on the one hand and authoritarian one on the other. Instead, what many counterparts have told to me is that we don't wanna get in the middle of a geopolitical great power conflict between two large states uh, that, that are vying for power. And so I think part of the issue that is important and certainly the, U the US needs to do a better job of reframing is not just painting this picture of competition with China as being about competition with China that it is about a much larger set of values underlying the use of technology when it comes to the interaction and relationship between citizen and state. I think the second thing that also kind of building on what Maya mentioned is that there are a lot of contradictions in terms of how US companies as well as uh, US policy uh, is currently uh, uh, currently operating. Uh, so, you know, for example, 
you know, very much the business model of Facebook, Google, many other uh, is to, uh, you know, take up and, and siphon a huge amount of, of personal of personal data. Now, granted, it's not being used for political purposes, but it's being exploited for uh, monetary and profit motives. And so there there is a distinction between those two. But yet the underlying idea in principle uh, is also similar in terms of the exploitation of data. Likewise, when you look at some of the decisions like the uh, recent banning of, of uh, you know, TikTok uh, and WeChat from the U.S. markets, it's not it's not portrayed in a way that is understandable in terms of why these applications are threats to digital rights and to citizens' rights and privacy as much as they represent the long arm of a Chinese state and part of this geopolitical equation. So to that extent, there needs to be more consistency in terms of U.S. policy. Uh, more, I think it needs to be explained in a much clearer way. And frankly, there needs, needs to be more of a strategic approach when it comes to integrating these core concepts of what it means to be a liberal democracy and how that intersects with technology. Well, uh, very good points. And at the very um, opening of this uh, conference, um, Condoleezza Rice said that it's very important that the U.S. doesn't out-China China. Lindsay, could you, could, you, uh, could, could you jump in now, please, on, on this whole broad topic? Absolutely. And, 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 and I, one, one question I one question I'd love to ask you, you know, is you know, do you get a sense that in fact, you know, some parts of the U.S. establishment and certainly within the Trump administration uh, at times appear to believe in the notion of digital sovereignty as much as China does? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough question, and I think you know, if there's been no other defining quality of of the U.S.'s engagement. Uh, towards China recently than sort of chaos and and a lack of clarity and and you know I think that's fun to poke fun at but it really actually also is undermining their strategic interests of democracies globally um, and uh, in in setting that clear distinction I mean you mentioned digital sovereignty and I think that's something that it's not just the United States that is wrestling with that. I think, you know, the EU is also looking, using certain framings uh, around digital sovereignty and, and autonomy to increase its own digital footprint beyond just the regulatory initiatives that it has successfully put forward. But I do think that a much more multilateral values-based approach is in order because that will get rid of some of these problems that the digital sovereignty framing um, and the out China, China framing, uh, I think are rightly uh, alighting on, which is that this isn't about, it doesn't, it's, it's unclear whether this really is about values um, or whether it is about the United States' economic interests. Uh, and that's something we saw in the 5G conversation. And I think we're also seeing play out in the information apps, but I think removing it from that US versus China frame and making it more about democracies versus autocracies and how we're shaping the future of these technologies, that will help solve some of these problems. Of course, it will be very difficult to do. And I, I don't know that we should hope for perfect lockstep alignment uh, among the major democracies of the world, but I think there are some core core values that we, that we do agree on. Um, and I would also just respond to your one of your earlier questions about sort of, you know, there's this there's this whole discussion about decoupling with China and how much we should continue to depend on China, uh, which is which is uh, certainly a, a, a extremely large economy that much of the world depends on, and how much we should do that going forward. Um, and I think these are these are again questions that we really do need to work out multilaterally. So it really is about this this rights based framing, and you know, in one 
area in particular to drive this conversation should be around human rights and universal rights. Uh, and I think the, the Xinjiang example provides uh, an excellent jumping off point, as horrific as it is, to say we don't want technology that's developed in liberal democracies to be directly aiding that repression. And that's kind of one sort of sensible way, I think, of cutting off the, the technology flow in an area that is very crystal clear. I think you know, there are a lot of areas where it's much less clear. You know, should you should you sell uh, a dumb component, a dumb infrastructure component uh, or just because it's China? Um, and, and those, I think, we need to work out more kind of as as democracies. But certainly on that human rights component, I don't think that that democracy should be aiding, aiding and abetting what's happening. And I think that's that's something I hope would be a unifying uh, feature of a democratic response. Thanks very much indeed. Now, we've got nearly 3000 uh, participants in the audience, and I'm keen to get uh, at least a couple of questions from them in our remaining time. And one question that's been raised that uh, others in the audience would like aired is how would you address the concern that funneling R&D spending through the US federal government would tend to bias projects towards internal political concerns that have nothing to do with the superpower marathon and things like diversity, income redistribution and so on. So on. I mean, I think that's a, that's a really important question because one of the assumptions underlying it um, it is that um, somehow R and D spending to, uh, you know, for, for the for the for the purpose of a great power marathon, you know, really shouldn't have any any bearing on um, internal governments or uh, governance or prosperity. Is that really the case? Who who would who would like to respond to that question, please? Yeah, I have just a, a quick response to that, and I think in, in some respects this gets back to uh, the points that Maya uh, and Lindsay have talked about, uh, as well as myself, and in, in that. You know, if it's just about how do I how do I win the marathon? How do I compete as efficiently as possible geopolitically against China? Then it's a fair question. You could say, well, are these other aspects, the inclusion agenda, diversity agenda, equality, are these distractions from winning this foot race at all costs? I would argue the strength of the U.S. model, the idea of what it means to be a little democracy, why we do represent an alternative to China, is the very fact that these are essential aspects to what we think makes for uh, a better society, makes for progress, that we do consider these other aspects, that we do think that incorporating diversity concerns, when we think about bias in technology and so forth, actually make for stronger technological products and, and, and really are a point of departure from what China is otherwise doing. And so that we either, we do have a choice to make, do we embrace and consider and incorporate these values or do we say, no, we need to focus just on the race itself. And I really do hope that we would factor in these values as part of the overproposition where uh, the United States is offering when it comes to uh, these sets of issues. Can I just add, though, um, on that point of a very practical example that I find extremely um, interesting is in Taiwan under Digital Minister Audrey Tan, who actually I think is actually um, part of this program, um, the um, what they have pioneered in one of the decision-making models in Taiwan um, is, is a system called POLIS, which um, is uh, instead of driving at divisions of people's opinions, talking about inclusive and inclusion and diversity in technology, um, the, the, the system drives towards consensus. Um, so I think there is a lot of technologies that address the idea of how do we include whole conversations that take place 
um, as a fundamental value of technological developments, there are there are ways of innovation that takes into these values and make it a, a stronger um, coming out of it. And uh, we should learn from from that rather than um, I think a lot of the social media um, technologies that are part of um, I guess companies trying to make more money is to drive division among political opinions in in Western um, societies. So that's just a practical. Um, point that could be, in, um, you know, learned. Thank you, Lindsay. Would you like any, to add anything to to uh, this part of the discussion? Yeah, I would. I mean, I would wholeheartedly agree that this is really about our, our competitiveness um, as as a nation in the United States and liberal democracies. And you know, even specifically to our technological competitiveness, I don't think we can have that predominance that that the United States has enjoyed without the input of, of foreign researchers and scholars. And just as a very personal example, when I worked in the physics lab, I was one of two Americans in the entire lab. Um, and it was really driven by, by students and researchers from all around the world, from countries that are free and less free and friendly and less friendly to the United States. And so I think some of what we've seen uh, coming out of the Trump administration on talent is particularly concerning, both from a competitiveness standpoint and from the attractiveness uh, of our global offering, and would would perhaps undermine the the very foundations on which these strengths are built uh, in the first place. I'm afraid we're really short of uh, of time, and I've got a last question to to ask all of you, uh, which has been reflected in some of the questions from the audience. Um, and, and that that is how great a difference uh, would there be in terms of uh, U.S. policy over uh, AI, China in particular, between a second Trump administration and a Biden one? Yeah, I'm happy just to, I mean, I think we've all kind of touched upon this issue in, in a variety of ways. Uh, you know, look, I think there needs to be a, a very significant reorientation. Uh, that I think that right now what we're seeing is a very strong emphasis on the geopolitical and that uh, simply focusing narrowly on that set of issues actually doesn't strategically get you closer to the overall objectives. It's about building alliances. It's, it's about uh, creating, fostering trust with a wider variety of partners, particularly those that may be distrustful at times of U.S. motives. And it's also about presenting a narrative that is understandable and that aligns with the traditional rights objectives uh, and democratic principles that the U.S. has traditionally upheld. Uh, I think we've seen a massive erosion of trust in of those issues under the Trump administration, and I think that is reflected in a policy that is not being carried out to its fullest effect. My hope would be that in either case, whether there is another Trump administration, in which case hopefully some of the more thoughtful thinkers uh, will will push for a massive reorientation, or if there's the uh, situation of a Biden administration, that a very different uh, course will be charted uh, along the lines of what uh, Vice President Biden has offered anyway. I'm not American, so I, I don't presume to have the kind of greater knowledge of how the Biden administration would look like. But like Stephen said, I think the Trump administration is seen around the world to be essentially undermining many of the things that the, the U.S. government say they they, they represent. Um, but on the other hand, I think the Trump administration has also rightly so identified the Chinese government as a threat to um, democracies and human rights. Um, uh, and I, I, I fear that um, the Biden administration might not 
not uh, be as, and I think a lot of people in the Chinese activist community also worry that the Biden administration may not be um, adequately recognizing that. But if um, there is an equal recognition combined with um, smart policies, like Stephen had just mentioned, um, I think that kind of value-driven uh, smartness could possibly be uh, important in changing the shape uh, the world is going to be in. I, I think you know I've been told I'm depressing when it comes to a lot of these a lot of these topics about AI. Um, but I, I think in this uh, particular area, um, as to a, you know potential Biden administration, um, I think I am a little bit optimistic that this confluence of value-driven behavior and recognition of the threat might come into fruition. I think we'd either a Biden or a Trump, a second Trump administration, we will see a slightly more multilateral approach. Um, I think probably if driven by Vice President Biden, uh, you'd expect more leaning into that with these potential tech alliances, the Tech 10, the D10, that framework that Britain um, has proposed. Um, but, and I think it will also be important to, to carry over some of the policies that have been uh, more effective. I think, you know, in particular, the, the, the drumbeat against Chinese intellectual property theft that we have seen uh, give credit where credit is due in spite of all the chaos. Um, I would hope that some of these, these policies would continue, but again, be framed in this much more multilateral values-based um, set of, of norms that can help renew American competitiveness and, and consider some of the broader issues at stake. Because I think if we just keep driving it through this narrow lens, um, it, it becomes very confusing for allies uh, to say whether whether we're just trying to promote U.S. technology and surveillance capitalism or whether there's a really uh, a broader um, rights-based agenda at stake. Thank you. Well, I, I wish I didn't have to end uh, the session uh, now, but I do have to. Um, I feel that we have, thanks to uh, my panelists, um, really put some flesh on the bones of what it means uh, to think of China as an emerging AI superpower. Uh, and we um, have covered, thanks to them, um, I think, you know, a great range of issues, including what the US and its friends uh, should do in terms of a response to China. And we've also cast it forward to beyond uh, the presidential election. So um, I am hugely uh, grateful uh, to Maya, to Steve and to Lindsay. Uh, and um, I hope that uh, the audience will join me in a virtual round of applause. I hope also that the conversations which we kicked off here can, um, can continue um, away from the conference. Uh, and um, now I'll hand it back to the organizers and I look forward to the rest of the conference. Uh, back to you, Alex. Well, thank you, Dominique and, and Maya, Stephen and Lindsay, Larry and Mike. Thanks to everyone who tuned in for joining us today. What a great program packed with valuable and lively insight into how the Chinese Communist Party is exporting its new technology stack around the world. And one key lesson perhaps from that last panel to remember is that we should be maybe looking at this as democracies versus autocracies and not just so narrowly uh, as US versus China. Um, so hopefully today sparks many more conversations and initiatives around these topics.